Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to this event at the LSE. Those of you who are LSE students and members, we're glad you turned out. Those of you who are visitors, thanks for coming. I'm Craig Calhoun, the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science, and I'm delighted that we've been included in the He for She Get Free Tour and that we have this distinguished panel here to speak to you today. LSE was founded 120 years ago for the betterment of society. We've made a firm commitment to equity, diversity, and inclusion. This was present at the start when the LSE was one of the few universities in the UK to admit men and women on equal footing. And it's never been more true than today when these issues are at the top of our agenda. They're at the top of our agenda in terms of our own internal life, equity, diversity, inclusion, but also research, the issues of development around the world, and the importance of work in support of women in so many different ways in contemporary life. He for She's Call for Action is a powerful reminder that we share responsibility for achieving these objectives in working towards representation and a more inclusive campus culture, as well as in all of our engagements around the world, LSE, LSE is committed to he for she's goals to address inequalities and build a just and an equal world. I'd like also to remark more broadly behind he for she on the importance of UN women as a focused agency dedicated to these issues within the larger UN framework, and indeed the role of the UN in general in action for women in development, in human rights, and in general. For Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hash GetFreeTourUK. I would ask you to please put your phones on silent, however, so as not to disrupt the event. This afternoon's event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a video recording and a podcast subject to no technical difficulties or severe coughing fits. <laughs> As usual, after the panel's own discussion, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to the panel. Somebody told them that there would be soft and easy questions. LSE students, please rise to the occasion <laughs> to make sure that the questions are really stimulating. Now, with no further ado, would you please join me in welcoming our first speaker, Elizabeth Niemiaro. Senior Advisor to the UN Undersecretary General, Executive Director of UN Women, LSE alumna, and head of the He for She campaign. Elizabeth. Thank you so much, um, President, for the warm uh, welcome to the team of UN Women. Um, I actually had a speech, but I don't think I'm going to need it, um, because being here today is quite an emotional thing for me. It was here at the London School of Economics, here in the UK, that I finally felt that I was equal. I grew up in a small village in Zimbabwe, and I had this dream of an education that seemed almost impossible. And so when famine devastated my small village, at the age of 10, I was forced to move 
from the countryside to the city and live with an aunt I had never met before. And so there I was at the age of 10 in school for the very first time. And all of a sudden, I felt what it was to be unequal. Because in the village, we're all poor, but we're equally poor. But in the eyes and the minds of the kids at this city school, I was not their equal because I couldn't speak English. I couldn't write my name. And I was far behind in terms of reading. But then I'd come here at the London School of Economics. And all of a sudden, my world opened up because for the first time I felt equal. I was among distinguished students at this institution And it gave me an opportunity and an excuse and the passion to dream bigger. And this is what he for she is about. It is really about tapping into the dreams that we have for ourselves, for our families, for our communities, and the dreams of a world where everyone is equal. We launched the movement last year with the support of Emma Watson, and it was absolutely fantastic because To be honest with you, in launching He For She, there was a lot of trepidation. We didn't quite know how were people going to respond to this particular movement that was almost challenging the status quo, that was inviting a whole gender, in fact all genders, to be part of the solution. So there was a bit of trepidation. But we firmly believed, and I think this was a passion that Emma Watson shared, a passion that Pumzile, the head of UN Women, shared, a former freedom fighter who was instrumental in the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, and something that I personally shared, which was that you cannot create social change with half of the team sitting at the table. Every civil rights movement, every social movement, from race to equality, to sexual equality, it has been about everybody coming together. So this is really what He For She is about. We launched He For She, and the most incredible thing happened. In the first week, more than 1,000 men, 100,000 men had signed up to He For She, and at least one man in every single country in the world. And that particular week alone, 1.2 billion conversations took place on social media. And then we realized that actually there was something really tangible, something concrete about he for she that has the potential to end one of the most difficult, I think one of the most remaining inequalities of the world that affects more than half of the world's population, and that's women and girls. So it's such an honor for us to be here. I am absolutely humbled uh, that this once malnourished African girl could stand before you And I speak to you as a fellow student to say that you have no idea just how lucky you are, how blessed you are, how being here at LAC today is going to open doors for you that you just never thought possible. Having LAC on your resume is going to be able to make you do pretty much whatever you set your mind to because one of the things that I learned at LAC was not only to care about your grades but to care about the world in which you live in. We took part in activist activities. I learned to be an activist here at LAC. And so I hope that us being here today inspires you to want to do something that's bigger than yourself because he for she is certainly bigger than myself. And it's been such an honor, and I'm looking forward to the panel discussion. And again, thank you for having us here. It's good to be back home.
Thanks so much, Elizabeth. I don't know why you're humbled. I'm proud <laughs> to have alumna of the university like you. It's exciting to have you back. Thank you. And let me not talk myself, but invite Douglas Booth to come up and speak. Douglas Booth's an actor. He's a key supporter of the He for She movement and an advocate. He's had a very distinguished career without the benefit of being an LSE graduate. <laughs> and he'll offer today's keynote speech. Hi. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, it's kind of inspirational to speak after you, Elizabeth, really. Um, so thank you so much for joining us here today um, for the Get Free Tour. We are really, truly thrilled um, to be here with you. Thank you to London School of Economics and President Craig Calhoun for opening up their campus to this important initiative. I also want to extend a huge thank you to Emma Watson and UN Women, whose visionary leadership started the movement that I believe can and will achieve gender equality. I am honoured to share with you what he for she means to me and to speak about uh, an issue very close to my heart. Right now, thousands of refugees fleeing war and persecution are seeking protection in Europe. Um, they are, the images um, from their journey are gut-wrenching. Now, while conflicts are devastating for everyone, they are particularly catastrophic for women and girls. Women and girls have fewer resources to protect themselves, are often targeted for sexual violence, and you may not realise this, make up over half of a displaced refugee population. So I recently went to the uh, Greek island of Lesbos with UNHCR, the UN's refugee agency, to talk to refugees who had made a very treacherous journey across an unpredictable sea. And being face-to-face -face with girls and boys my own age and hearing their tragic stories was eye-opening. You know, I, I met a, a young man called Walter who actually reminded me of one of my best friends from school. See, these people are just like you and me. I mean, they don't have some superhuman power that protects them from fear or suppresses, you know, their hopes and expectations for a future. You know, they don't possess a body where hunger and thirst make them, don't make them weak or feet that fail to blister and bleed when they are forced to walk hundreds, if not thousands of miles, to seek safety. Just because they have suffered so enormously doesn't mean they don't feel each tragedy any less. Suffering and grief does not plateau. To lose a brother and then a daughter doesn't make losing a husband any easier. Because their suffering is so extreme, it doesn't mean we here can't relate to it. The only difference between us as human beings is luck. I, like the vast majority of you here, was born into a safe country. Um, uh, roughly two-thirds of the refugees that I met in Lesbos are from Syria, and these refugees, and many others too, have, been the, have had the terrible misfortune to be born into a country now utterly ravaged by civil war. Now, I ask you to take a moment to really understand where these people have come from, to understand the horrors from which they have had to flee. Imagine having to witness your friends and family dying, your home being destroyed, all this education and your hopes for a future being brutally interrupted. Just imagine the courage you would have to summon to undertake such an incredibly dangerous journey and become a refugee at the mercy of others. Take time to picture all the hopes they have for a safe life, a rebuilt life and a proper future. See, I am he for she, 
because engaging men everywhere is vital to ending gender-based atrocities in these areas of conflict. Engaging men in this campaign will help to protect and maintain respect for the women and girls seeking refuge in the surrounding countries and continents, including our own. We are here today because we need everyone to find a voice. He for she and get free has given me a voice to speak out for equality, and I believe it can give you a voice too. Get free calls on you to express yourself and explore your own understanding of gender. And many of us guys would have grown up in an environment where if you missed a kick at goal at school, which I personally always did, you'd, you'd be told, stop kicking like a girl. Or if I, if, if I decided to go and use my um, Friday lunch break to go and practice with the school choir, that that was for girls. Or the sporty girl who preferred to practice hockey in her spare time rather than hanging out with her mates, she must be a lesbian. Well, no. You know, enough is enough. Yeah, I want to make sure that when I am lucky enough to have children, they will be going to a school with the understanding that they live in a world in which they can be free to be themselves, to live as they want, and just to be who they are. We are putting the movement in your hands, turning to you to help us create a world in which gender is just a spectrum of beauty and not limitation. Youth advocates across the world have raised their voices in support for Hifashi. Let's add your name to the list. Let's decide right here, right now, to become advocates for change. Thank you. Those were terrific remarks, Douglas, and I think they are a call for everyone to join you in advocacy. And I would remind us that Douglas pointed to two parts of a spectrum here, the gender-based atrocities that occur in the lives of refugees in situations of armed conflict, which help to drive people into refugee status, and there are unspeakable atrocities, but also the gender-based stereotypes and discrimination that help to create the occasions for those conflicts and that create the inequalities that people experience in myriad ways in their lives. And both of these are important. It's not only the atrocities that call us to be he for she. It is also the inequalities, also the stereotypes, and also the other injustices. And now we have a chance for a panel discussion, and eventually for your questions to the panel, get them ready, make them hard, (laughs) that um, can explore these issues a bit more deeply for us. Our panel includes Elizabeth Niamara, whom we've already heard from, or more, Lena Schofield, the LSESU's women's officer, the former vice president of the Student Union's Feminist Society, Hilary Stouffer, who's a visiting fellow in the new Center for Women, Peace, and Security here at LSE, Charles Stevens, the head of Global Gender Agenda (coughs) and head of Diversity and Inclusion head office functions at Barclays PLC, (coughs) note to the LSE task force, on equity, diversity, and inclusion. Maybe we need a head of global gender agenda at the LSE. Let me ask a first an opening question, invite each panel member to comment, and uh, then we will follow by discussion amongst the panel. That first question is, how do we make workplaces, and especially universities, places where all individuals can flourish, environments for everybody equally? 
Do you want to start us off, Elizabeth? You said a little bit about this in your remarks, and then we can just go down the table. So I think, is this on? Yeah, it's on. Okay, so one of the um, things that we are focusing with He For She is it is indeed a people's movement, but we also recognize that there is a bigger responsibility that men in position president, being yourself, uh, ought to do more. Uh, and so he for she has a top-down approach called Impact 10 by 10 by 10, where we've literally gathered 10 heads of states, 10 CEOs, 10 university presidents that are going to champion for us a gender equal world in the shortest time possible. And Barclays is sort of one of the uh, impact champions as well. What these leaders have done is to come up with what we are calling game-changing commitments. So they've come up with three game-changing commitments that are not speaking in terms of what are you doing to promote gender equality, but literally what are you going to do to actually achieve parity within your corporation or institution. So it's, it's looking at the policies and in particular on the university piece, all the universities that are part of Impact 10 by 10 by 10, there's a baseline commitment that literally says to become an impact champion, you have to be able to institute mandatory gender training for all students, um, so first year in tech, and faculty members, and also be able to do an annual refresher course of that. The second thing is to also look at the issue of violence on college campuses, which again, had, you know, was a huge issue in the U.S. It's become a huge issue everywhere. UN Women is a global entity, and we hear this from all our countries. So it's really looking at the structural change that the administrations can take to achieve this equal world. Great. Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate it. Um, it's an interesting paradigm to think about, and if I look at it from the scope of Barclays, we actually are a majority female organization. 51% of our workforce is female. But whenever I look at the top two professional bands at director and MD level, we drop to 22%. Frighteningly enough, we're actually at the forefront of financial services when it comes to women in leadership roles, not where we want to be. But we have to ask ourselves, what are the things that drive that? And if we look back to the 70s, and I know for some of you in the room that feels like an eternity ago, um, but definitely within my lifetime, the reality was that it was part of our employee value proposition that, ladies, if you got married and you worked for the bank, you were forced to resign because your husbands would earn enough for you to have the ability to stay at home to take care of your family. And so it's interesting that what's once a source of pride is honestly a bit embarrassing to look back in a modern lens. We have to look at both the, the social constructs that existed here in the UK and elsewhere where we operate and how we begin to change that. So we're not only going through and saying, what is it we do within the bank that may limit female progression? I remember in my professional career hearing men say things like, women won't be on my executive committee or on my management team. But frankly, right now, I think we're at a point where a fish doesn't know it's in water, and we do things that limit the potential of people around us, both male and female, um, interactions in a very subtle way that we may never realize we're doing. And so we're looking at those processes systematically to say, what can we do that respectfully upsets the apple cart and creates a new course? And that's very much where our commitments are aligned to. And so, for example, every single director and MD that really are the ones that make the hiring promotion decisions and drive the business for the bank globally have been through an unconscious bias training class that really links to the things we do to give people in a group the opportunity to say, hang on a second, this sounds like that scenario we read about in the training or that we saw played out. How do we challenge ourselves to come up with a different outcome? And is this really the best of what we can get from our people? I'll stop there, and I'm sure 
Thanks. That's that's really helpful. So. Um, so I'll focus on the university's portion of the question, as that's my area as a student officer, and I'll use examples from my experience of LSE. Um, first, universities need to shift their priorities. They need to focus more on students and less on profits. Marginalized students cannot trust their universities have their best interests at heart when profit margins matter more than student well-being. LSE continues to bring in measures that will disproportionately impact women's students such as their recent discussion of shutting down the LSE nursery. NSS scores that show that LSE student satisfaction is going down, but when focus is more on profit than student experience, that isn't being addressed. Students need to see a consistent and ongoing commitment to prioritizing marginalized students. Um, when I first came to LSE in my orientation, the first thing that was said to us reinforced an elitist culture rather than an inclusive one. We were told to be proud of being at such an elite university. What we didn't hear about was student well-being, about the pressures we would un be under, about how to deal with sexual harassment on campus and in halls, and what support was available for when things go wrong. One in four university students will develop a mental health problem, and university-age women are in the most at-risk age group for sexual assault, so having adequate counseling and support for students is essential at all universities to have an inclusive environment. As is having grievance procedures, that make students feel comfortable, listened to, and confident in a swift and just resolution. Many universities are not prepared to enforce real consequences for misogynistic behavior, so students don't feel it is worth coming forward with complaints, and lad culture persists. Finally, higher education has a problem. Women and BME people are underrepresented as professors and in top management. In order to have an environment where everyone can flourish, marginalized students need to be able to see role models that they feel represent them. Women and BME thinkers are also underrepresented in the readings for our courses. In one of my courses this year, women make up one half of one week of a 20-week course. Student-led initiatives at LSE, such as Why Is My Curriculum White, highlight the demand for a more diverse curriculum that is less Eurocentric. To give students opportunities to feel inspired and represented, universities need to set and meet targets for more women and BME people in positions of power and work on addressing biases in the curriculum. Okay, great. Thank you, Lena. And Hi, everyone. Um, I, it's easy to go last because I can just pick up on what everybody else says, and then I sound very knowledgeable. Um, but I, I want to uh, pick up on actually something everybody else said, which is about unconscious bias and conditioning. In my own career, I've been, I'm a human rights lawyer, uh, but I've been a diplomat, and I've worked in foreign policy, and I've been an aid worker, and I've, I've done lots of stuff along the way. You can all do that, too. LSE will help you get there. Um, but, and I've, I've had amazing bosses, most of them men, a lot of them men, because law and diplomacy and foreign policy are very male-dominated fields. And I've been extremely lucky to have men mentors who put me forward, male bosses who will train me well and, and teach me to have, perhaps be more ambitious than I would have otherwise been. So I do feel like I'm here today because of an unconscious uh, he for she movement that goes on beneath the surface when you have the right people around you. But even, even today, um, when I'm in a law firm that I do consulting work for, or I used to work at the United Nations as well, um, when you, I have been in so many meetings where I know my professional accomplishments are very well respected, and I am also the person that is asked to go get the coffee. 
and it is because I am the only girl in the room, or maybe one of them. And so everyone will agree that everybody would like some coffee, and then we just sit there awkwardly until somebody says, so, Hillary or Elizabeth or Lena, you guys want to go get that coffee? And then you think, well, I would also like coffee, so I, I guess it's okay. But, you know, Matt never goes to get coffee, and Jason never goes to get coffee. Um, I'm also very often the one who's asked to take notes. Now, it's possible that I'm the world's best note-taker, but I have the handwriting of a serial killer, so there's just, there's just no way that my notes are that much better. But when, you know, when somebody has to take the notes, it's not that nobody should be the note-taker, but it is that we should switch off. And when it's always the women or the girls taking the notes... I can't be fully present in the meeting because I'm trying to listen to what everybody else is saying. And so this is, it's unconscious. I don't think my male bosses even know they're doing it, but that's part of the problem. So I think that improving workplace culture or improving university culture is not going to be some massive revolution, but um, a commitment to breaking bad habits. And we can get you guys early. We can catch you now. So you can make sure that next time someone gets coffee, you just volunteer. I don't care what your gender is. Just everybody raise their hand at once, and there'll be lots of coffee. Um, (laughs) But but it's unconscious. But you don't know you're doing it. But now that we've pointed it out, maybe you will know you're doing it going forward. And, And we can't do it without you. And I wouldn't be here without the great men in my life. So I'm super grateful for that. But along the way, too, there's some things that I would like to change. So hopefully we can going forward. Right. Thank you. There's a theme running through this of both the everyday and the terrible that both need attention in all of this, as there was indeed in Douglas's speech. Um, do you have any questions for each other? You were pretty much in agreement and in the same notes. Anything you'd like to follow up by asking each other? I'm going to be stereotypically male because um, every <laughs> time we... You got it, and, and, and I think that's part of it. And I'm, I'm kind of using myself as an example. Oh, I'm a big American. Um, as a boy, I was socialized when someone says I need, and it's not necessarily the copy, but it's it's one of those things. I'm socialized to start raising my hand to volunteer before I even know what the problem is, and it, it's one of those where I, I jump, I physically start leaning into it, and it happened. You know, President, when you went through and we're talking about, let's ask the questions. And, and I consciously have to go sit back for a second and see what happens. Um, and it is that unconscious bias, and it's that, that stuff that happens where we're, we're all taught by our parents and by society and, and the, every impact around us to behave in certain ways. And in some cases, me being ambitious is viewed as an asset, but all of a sudden we talk about the women in the room and it's being an, an ambitious woman and, and a trait that that women are taught to aspire to by mothers or fathers. And, and it's those things we, we need to be conscious of. And I, I hope you're, you're pushing things to the point of, um, for the, the, the sake of argument, and that doesn't happen every time. 85%? So not every time, okay. so there would have been a time. Spoken like a banker. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things that I do see, and, and I think... We as, as society need to appreciate there are times whenever we as men need to say, hang on a second, let's be aware of these stereotypes that happen, but first we have to learn they're there and appreciate them in ourselves. And then there's times where we need folks to go through and say, I know it doesn't feel quite comfortable to ask the first question from the audience, and that's a bit of a cue for you that I'm sure we're going to be getting to in a second, um, to, to realize you've got to bust up where our comfort zones are on both sides of the equation. Right, so what you've just seen here is self-sacrificing behavior <laughs> to break the ice. 
So I kind of just wanted to pick up on kind of asking you as well, Hilary, about kind of what you were saying with stuff like that, because I know I've experienced similar things in jobs that I've had. And um, do you feel sort of empowered at all to stand... Because I try with things like that, like not being the first to speak or when someone's speaking over you or you're expected to fulfill a role that isn't necessarily your role because you're a woman, that I try to tell myself I'm going to say something, I'm going to say something every time. But you do know, like, consciously and unconsciously, you know that, that there will be, like, professional or social consequences for that because you're expected to fulfill that role. And how, how can you balance wanting to have, wanting to assert yourself with the sort of very real um, and ingrained gender roles that there are consequences for sort of breaking? This is an excellent question because I'm about to out myself as someone who has spoken about a lot of things that maybe I don't practice in my own life all the time. And it is true. Sometimes I, I go get the coffee because uh, my boss asked me to, right? And it doesn't, I mean, when I'm the boss, if I have a male intern or a female intern, I will ask the intern to go get the coffee. But I'm no longer the intern. I've been doing this for 10 years. And, and so that's, that, that's the part of it that I think is starting to get gets frustrating. But do I ever say anything? No, because... And this is where women have to work on it, and we need help from the men in the room, perhaps. Women are people pleasers, or I, I will speak for myself. Generally, I'm, I'm a middle child, and I'm the only girl in my family of boys, and I would like everybody to just get along. And the, it, the meeting will go better if somebody takes notes, and the meeting will go better if somebody gets coffee. And I'd rather just kind of help it along than take a stand every time I'm annoyed that my boss asked me to make coffee. Now, I don't have that many female bosses. I haven't had very many yet, and I don't know if the dynamic will be different when and if that happens. But I think I have to fight my own urge to try and make everybody like me because it's okay if, if everybody doesn't like you you know that is I mean I'm an overly smiley American but it is it is absolutely fine if not everybody likes you all the time and if you do want to take a stand the laws in this country actually are pretty good and they will protect you you, you generally cannot be fired for not getting the coffee but uh, <laughs> but we, it, it's worth looking into and it's a good question it's very different in the state so isn't there no no fault Firing. They could fire you for no reason. That's true. You should all stay here and get jobs because the, the, the laws are much different in America. Let me ask another one. The, um, we've had several themes that, that came up. A lot of this was around good behavior in a certain sense, um, both in the positive sense, what people do that is generally good and, and is praising uh, male bosses who behave better than some others or something. Um, but also bad things that happen on campus. What about structural change, too? So I think you know, one of the problems with the stories of, of the women getting the coffee and all is that the women are more likely to be in the subordinate jobs in this. So it's not just a matter of good behavior and changing attitudes. It's a matter of changing the whole hierarchical structure of who's in what's job, what job. Um, how do we work on that? What do you think about the connections between these things? in the university and workplaces and so forth? Is it the university's doing a good thing because by we have a slight majority of women students and so forth, therefore we're contributing to people getting different jobs? Or the university is doing a bad thing because in terms of role models, we have fewer proportionately women at the full professor academic ranks who would have the you know, most prestige be role models. How do, we, how do we balance the view here? I mean. I'm, I'm a big fan of targets. I think it is really important for institutions, particularly institutions that are working 
with young people to um, to prioritize and sort of within within hiring, but also within promotion, making sure that we do see women at the top, that we do see representation and diversity at the top, so that it isn't just like white men at the top who we have to look up to and be our mentors. And here again, we have a national difference issue you alluded to on other fronts that. Um, those of us who come from a certain country across a certain ocean um, are more familiar um, with targets in hiring, which are um, more available options within legal frameworks than is the case here. Um, so there are different. So one of the issues is set a target and follow. Another issue is do you need to change the law to make it possible, or change procedures and regulations to make it possible to do some of this? That's, yeah. Please. yeah. So I I think actually we maybe need we need to unpack this a little. I think the quarter laws are there because you know it's sort of a way to enforce that things actually get done. It's not an ideal thing, but I think with no option, I think it is an option. Um, I think we look at policies, and in fact, the biggest issue with gender inequality right now is not because they aren't. Uh, laws uh, uh, on this particular issue is the implementation that suffers, right? A lot of countries agree that, you know, we don't want violence against women or men. A lot of countries agree that it's better when women have access to the same opportunities, but the issue is implementation. And this is where actually he for she sort of comes in, and the biggest focus for us is to really look at who are the decision makers. And the reality is that they are mostly men. And so this is, I think, one of the things we're trying to do with a particular impact 10 by 10 by 10 is look at those, that kind of leadership. What can they concretely do? Because the will is there, mm-hmm. certainly. Um, the resources may be limited, but again, it's a matter of prioritization. If something is really important, it will get done. So it's really looking at how do we influence the people in those positions and how do they also take accountability and there is a power dynamic with gender inequality unfortunately right there's a power dynamic and there is this patriarchy as well that exists with it and so it's looking at men as role models and how can they contribute to to be part of the solution absolutely this is something we've actually implemented in the bank as part of our um, commitments but there's this huge economic model that goes through and tracks whether you're going to get a loan, be it a credit card or a mortgage or whatever, and it, it weights the, the factors like the cost of capital, so the interest rate, which your limit should be, and so on. And we took that model and morphed it to put our talent pipeline through it because the levers when it comes to having representation are really around hiring, promotion, and attrition rate. And so we were able to create targets, and our goal is to create year-on-year a one-percentage-point change. And that doesn't sound like a lot when we're talking about margins or or financial uh, matters, but when we're talking about talent, a one-percentage-point change is pretty drastic. Um, We're also working at the same time to go through and talk about these systems and policies and and what's the culture in the organization – that goes through and enables those. Because I've seen organizations go through and say, we're going to hire a whole bunch of rainmakers, and we're going to bring brilliant people in. But the organization never changes to embrace them, I think it's to some of your point. And so very much trying to balance both of those and drive them, because some of these things have been around for centuries. Yes. You know, and, and it's not an easy answer. If it was an easy answer, we've got brilliant people in this room. We could come up with the silver bullet that would fix it. You know... But some of these things, it's just a matter of will, right? And, and again, just a very quick example. 
we have come up with some really, really awesome commitments under here for she. Unilever, most of you know who Unilever is, two billion products that reach a consumer on a daily basis. Paul Pullman is a here for she impact champion. With his commitment, he's actually made a commitment to ensure that there will be parity at the management level across all Unilever by 2020. Uh, this is not something that, you know, Unilever was talking about, I think, vocally before uh, they joined the movement. You look at a company like Accor, 180,000 employees, 5,000 houses on five continents, and because of their heave or share commitment, they are going to ensure equal pay for all the employees. And again, it just comes down, I think, sometimes we make it sound like it's a very, very complicated thing. It is just an individual making the decision. All a CEO has to do, I mean, of course, he has a board, but it's to pick up the, you know, pick up a pen and just sign and make that commitment. So again, I just I want to make sure that it's we don't always make it sound like it's oh you we can't do this and, and as if it's a thing that nobody has any control. There are people in power; it's their responsibility to make sure that those changes are done. But it, this isn't about just people in power. This is about every single one of us in the, the room doing something today that will make a difference. Correct. Um, you know, I have a lot of people in the bank that all of a sudden are waiting something to, you know, some message to come down or program to happen. And I'm like, be the change you want to have happen. Um, I was recently, I live over near the tower and I was, there's a small grocery kind of grab and go there. And I was shocked one day to be in there. I'm in the center of London, literally across the street from the tower of London. And there is a, a one, a veiled woman working in the counter. This guy came in and grabbed her breast. And I'm like, I said something not very polite <laughs> in very loud terms out of a reaction. And I'm blown away. I'm like, I'm in the center of London and this is happening. This isn't a rural village in Africa or the rural United States or someplace else. And it was one of those things, a visceral reaction that this is not possible. And the guy turned around and ran. But, you know, it's, it's, it's something that makes a difference because my hope is that he will realize he should already know that's unacceptable. But what's going to happen next time if he starts to do something? And what is it that each of us can do to make a difference in our environments today, be it in the classroom, be it at the market, or at our corporate offices? Well, let me, let me offer, let me respond a little bit on the, as a vague sort of kind of like CEO. CEO. Um, the university presidents, not exactly corporate presidents, but I think in every setting, one of the issues is prioritization. I want to say two things about it. So one is just you make it a priority and then you really work on it. Right? The other is that there's a tendency to see all the, quote, social justice proposals as competing with each other rather than competing mm -hmm. with business as usual. So you say, well, the LSE is not what it should be on the issue of women um, on the faculty. It's not terrible, but it's not what it should be. Right? We actually are terrible on the issue of black people on the faculty, right? And, and, and so then you get into an argument about, well, which do you want to fix? Do you want to fix women or do you want to fix black people? And then somebody says, what about people with disabilities? And then somebody else says, well, actually, there's sexual orientation. And you, you pretty soon end up with an argument about trade-offs among the various groups who might need support rather than um, between um, these various groups and business as usual. Again, equity. So that it seems to me a common pattern, not unique to us, that this happens. The second thing is you get a trade-off about power, right? So as it happens um, in a university, faculty also are power. So one of the great things about the LSE is I think the faculty assembled in its most inclusive way will over and over again pass calls for gender equality and a whole series of other good measures. 
the implementation of which goes to departments when they're conducting searches for particular faculty members or deciding who gets PhD fellowships or so forth, who then look at concrete cases and make different decisions. And among other things, it takes us back to unconscious bias training, because the key thing in unconscious bias training is realizing you have unconscious biases. Right? It's not that they go away, all of them, immediately. Mm-hmm. And, and so the working through process is a key part of the implementation here. So I think that the willingness to make the bold gesture is usually only a first step in working it through, because there are all these concrete decisions made by other people at various places. I'm going to push back a little bit on this. I I agree with everything you said, but especially for the students in the room, you all are going to run into this for the next 45 years and you're working where people hide behind limited resources, okay? And they say limited resources are why we can't do X or we can't do Y or we can't do Z. And it's true. I mean, a, a university does have limited resources. A government does have limited resources. The United Nations does have limited resources. But we can't constantly say... Well, we'll just do it later. Let's do it in 10 years when we have more money mm-hmm. or a bigger endowment or more people. So you, uh, President Calhoun, I think, is, I have no idea about the finances of the university or the different power structures. I, I believe everything he says. I think it's accurate. And you should still continue to question him on it because you are, we're going to run into that problem. You are going to run into a boss going forward that says, I'd love to hire uh, another person for this team, but I have limited resources and Jack is already here. Well, if you think Jill is the right person for the job, then fight for it. You may not get everything you want, but you have to, it's exactly what Chuck said, you're going to have to be, kind of fight the power on this one a little bit going forward for the next 45 years, which is way longer than you've been alive, so no problem. But I, that, I think you do, we have to push back because it's true, but we can't let it rest there. So I'm going to push back to this. I actually agree with all of that. And actually, all the LSE students, you should be fighting. You should be questioning, not just me, but everybody in positions of power. You should be, this is the only way things get done. It's not limited resources. It's multiple decision makers yeah. that I was pointing to as the particular blockage here. And that's not something to be hidden behind either. It's that, that we have competing goods and one of the issues in prioritizing is to get people to decide which is forefront now um, and follow through on that. And so that's what I meant about the decisions where we can get everybody gets together in a room and the topic is gender equality. We all say we're all for gender equality. And then we don't actually implement in all the different decisions that we make in various contexts and that's the follow through. And those are mostly not resource constraint. It's not namely that. I think actually resource constraint is a very secondary issue in the genuine gender inequality that exists here. I think we should ask for questions from the floor. You all up for it? Okay, I'm going to warrant to try to get really hard and difficult questions. They're the panel. I'm exempt from those difficult questions. Stand up, sign, Claudia. Yeah, woman in the third row. And let me ask people to identify themselves when they speak. And if you wouldn't mind standing up, I'm sorry, we can't see you. Apologize. Thank you. Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, so my name is Gordon, I'm a third-year social policy network student here, um, and I've also worked with Lana on feminist stuff. Um, so on the He For She website, it states, He For She is a solidarity movement for gender equality that brings together one half of humanity in support of the other half of humanity for the benefit of all. So personally, I'm struggling to see how gender equality can be achieved if we do not acknowledge all our gender and non-gender-based identities. The statement on the website seems to suggest that non-binaries are non-humans. So my question for the panel is, 
how will the greater presence of he or she on our LC campus and in the wider gender equality debate create an inclusive environment when the name in itself fails to recognize the existence of our trans, our non-binary, our gender-fluid friends and colleagues? Okay, we're going to take questions in groups of three here. Suggested somebody else break the ice. Yes, on the aisle, two-thirds of the way back. Hi. I haven't got anything written down, so, so I'm already winging it. Um, I have come home from campus to find three of my flatmates in various states of being shaken up on different occasions where they've been not assaulted, but talked to or looked down upon or approached in a, in a terrifying way on the way to and from campus. And the name of the top of this slide is Inclusive Campus Culture. And I don't know how we can call it an inclusive campus when getting to and from campus after the hours of six o'clock is terrifying for women in London because every time you get on a tube, you have to look around and check that there's enough people around and that that kind of thing is already preventing so much inclusion on our campus. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts on how we can make it inclusive while being so limited. Okay, thanks. Okay, there's something Yeah, white shirt there, yeah. Um, hi, my name's Annie Shah. I was the former president of LSESU Wimley of Tomorrow Society. Um, and my question is, basically, how do we continue to empower women on campus in new and exciting ways? Um, something that we did last year was the Red Light Project. But I personally feel like we didn't hit all of the groups that we wanted to. Um, some people didn't agree with what we were trying to do. And also, how did we, br- uh, how did we bring men into the conversation? Um, something that Women Leads of Tomorrow, we have women in our name, but a lot of get guys, and um, especially at Freshers' Fair, they come up to our stall and kind of think, oh, this is it for us. And last year, out of 500 members, we had one male. Um, and that was the year that this campaign ran. And we did so many different things to try and encourage men to come to our coffee mornings, yet we only had one out of 500. Okay. We've got three really interesting questions. So thank you, as you get it. We've got, the, what about non-binary and trans people and others who would be left out by the he-she binary. What about um, getting to and from the campus? One thing, campus being inclusive, but getting to and from it. And how to empower women and get men involved in empowering women on the campus. Um, So I've started with you before. Let's go to the other end. (laughs) I'm going to start with the last question, if I may, just because it it speaks very closely to, to something, a theme that I wanted to bring up today which is um, basically, like for example, I'm on a lot of panels uh, about foreign policy where I'll be the only woman. And after I give my prepared statement, I am never heard from again. I know that's hard to believe. But uh, I'm, because all the questions in the audience will be directed towards the men on the panel, and including from the women, including from the women in the audience will raise their hand and say, that's all very well and good, but all of our questions are for Chuck. Um, and it's unconscious again. But 
So the way that the way that organizers and foreign policy think tanks are trying to fight this is they are no longer having events that um, where, the, where all the panel members are one gender or the other. So there has to be a mix of the two. And so for the, the women's group on campus, the women's leadership group, if you want more men, maybe they're not going to come up, but they're 18-year-old guys. Maybe they're intimidated. Maybe they just don't know enough about it. Maybe they're unconscious in their conditioning. But instead of just hoping they'll show up to your coffee meetings, I would have an event and invite them to speak. I would have a panel and invite them to be included, two or three or five, and maybe not everybody will say yes, but the way that you're going to get them there is just by continuously inviting them to show up and see what you're all about, as opposed to hoping they'll just walk by during Freshers' Week and figure it out on their own, because everybody's attention is very distracted during Freshers' Week. So I think that's one way that you could address that question going forward. Very good. Lena? Um, so I'm going to address the questions in reverse order. So Annie, to address your question um, about Women Leaders of Tomorrow, which is an amazing society, really great. Um, I just kind of put the advice out there that the Feminist Society has an ally outreach officer who has kind of a similar remit, and that potentially there could be some collaboration there. And as well, we have a lot of um, men who are members of the Feminist Society. And so I think there is the opportunity for collaboration there because I know that there will be men at LSE who are interested in engaging with the women leaders of tomorrow. Um, With regards to harassment on travel, um, I don't necessarily know how to make it safer. We've been, with, with regards to like TFL, I know I've been engaged with a lot of campaigns with things like, I don't know if everyone remembers last year, the women who eat on tubes. Facebook page, which was a massive thing, where men were photographing women on public transport without their consent to then, like, talk about on the internet. It was very creepy and disturbing and just made London that bit much worse to navigate. And I think pressuring TFL to sort of improve their practices is something that I'm always keen to engage with. And also, I kind of just want to say, like, in solidarity, that I, I feel your pain and your fear I try to go home like with my flatmate because the tube is scary and there are scary people on the tube. Just this two days ago coming in, there was this man on the tube who was like physically harassing a woman and my flatmate and I were too uncomfortable to intervene because we believed that there would be violence if we did intervene. And so I just kind of want to say that I, I feel your pain there. Um, and Porvaja, I just want to say that I agree with you, that I think that we need to stand with people who are trans, people who are non-binary, um, people who don't fit into the gender binary, and I think that it is really damaging when you have a large campaign that doesn't recognize that and it sort of seems to erase that. And I actually had some reservations about engaging today due, for that reason. Um, I would kind of talk about some of the last ones around um, the empowering of women, getting men involved, and, and I think a bit un- uniquely positioned to talk about that one. I'm a 6'3 white guy, 250 pounds. I don't ever remember feeling scared of being on the train, ever. I realize the, the privilege I just went through and talked about. I don't think most men do. you know. And so we can talk about being scared, but... If I can't even comprehend it, I can't be there for you. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It's not a reality that I'm aware of. So how do you make it real for the guys? I absolutely agree with the personal invitation. 
We, with our employee network groups at Barclays, they're massive. They achieve great things. But they tend to be just about the people that fit that demographic. The number one thing we see work is going through and whoever's a member saying your ticket to entry is to bring someone different than you to this event. And that's your price for coming in. Because I may not respond to this event if I hear the name for it, but if someone asks me, I'll absolutely go to support my friend Elizabeth. And so I feel a personal personal accountability to go through and support them. Um, I think there's a lot about these dialogues that it is coming out very binary, and I appreciate completely that the consequences of these problems are very different. But there was an article in The Atlantic. It's a U.S.-based magazine. I have a great respect for the work they do. And it was called What I Learned About Being a Father from RBG. And if you're not familiar, it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of the U.S. Supreme Court justices. And it was a male talking about him taking a career break so he could stay at home with their children while his wife completed her residency program. And it went through and talked about the, the, the shaming that he encountered of people going through and saying, that's sweet, dear, you'll get another job, when he made a conscious choice. You know, my parents were the, the generation where the fathers traveled for work. I don't have children, but if I did, I wouldn't want to be an absentee father. And there's not a lot of leeway in society necessarily for men to be as active in raising their children as women have. And there's actually some studies that show the wage penalty for men taking time out to stay at home is higher than what it happens for women. And so I, I, I hate to say it because it's got to be still about the concerns around safety, but how do you make it relevant for the audience you're trying to attract? Because I can intellectually appreciate the safety, but until I experience it and I have had that epiphany, I'm not there for you, even though I may be willing to be. I'm going to skip on the gender binary because I know that's a passion of Elizabeth's and one that we've had a lot of conversations about. Okay. So actually, this was part of my speech. So I should have written my speech in retrospect (laughs) because I was going to address that very same point. Um, you You raise a very important point. It's something that has been at the forefront of our thinking as we look at how is the movement going to evolve in year two and beyond. We just finished sort of one year of He For She launch. To put this into context, this was developed by UN Women, and UN Women, we are the entity for women and girls, and so naturally, in coming to this uh, creation of He For She, there was a very binary look at how can we literally engage men that have been outside of this important conversation. Uh, The thing I was going to mention in my speech to you was that we have been receiving thousand emails on a daily basis, and a lot of them from young people. And this has been such an eye-opener, for even for me, um, as somebody driving this campaign forward, to really understand, and actually Emma Watson did mention this in his speech, that gender isn't binary. It's a spectrum, and we find ourselves on that spectrum. In uh, the past year, has been a moment of growth for us on the He For She, and partly the reason why we have the Get Free Tour is to continue this listening tour. We want to hear more. How can we better support you to own this movement because it is your movement. You created the movement. Uh, And so we are actually in the process of developing a new website with new content and you will see a a much, much more inclusive agenda uh, with He For She in terms of how we message but also in terms of how we actually engage everybody in in this particular movement. So you are right. Gender isn't binary. He For She believes that it is a spectrum and we want everybody because we are, no one is free, and no one is equal until we're all equal, and we can't leave anybody behind. Okay. 
We've just got a couple of minutes, so let me ask for just a couple of questions and maybe suggest if you have an idea of who you want to hear from, indicate that so we won't go through all four panels each time. A woman in a sort of gray sweater about fifth row. I see the person in the back, yeah. Hi, my name's Ricola. Something we picked up on in the FemSoc AGM last week was getting women to feel that they can say that they're a feminist, that they maybe go to women meetings tomorrow or the women in business, but they don't actually want to stand up and say that they're a feminist. Or maybe they'd even be happy to say to their boss, you know, I'm not happy with how you're treating me, but to really feel empowered to come up with that definition of themselves. Okay, let me say they're feminist. In the very back, there's someone with a hand up, yeah. Hi, my name is Martha. I'm a student at I'm in the International Future Department here at the LSE. And my question kind of comes out of the discussing about how we can get men more involved in this movement. And I think one way in which we can do that is to actually talk about the way in which the culture of manhood, the expectations placed upon men and the pressures placed upon them about what it actually means to be a man, how this affects them as well. We know that here in the UK, the biggest killer of men under the age of 50 is suicide. So I would imagine that that has something to do with encompassing that notion of masculinity and what it means to be a man. So my question kind of that is directed to Elizabeth and also to Lena, in terms of Elizabeth, how do we introduce this notion and idea and discuss with men how this affects them? And also with Lena, how can we kind of create a forum in which we can openly discuss about this issue, about um, this culture of manhood and what it means and the expectations that it places on men and how it makes them feel? And maybe that's a better way to support the discussion and to get them more involved. Okay, so take this. We've got the question about how important is it to be explicitly feminist and about masculinity cultures of malehood. Anyone want to volunteer? I'll volunteer. Okay, you're uh, up. You, no, no, I, I was the last one to speak, so you go. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so I was just going to take um, Martha's question about uh, addressing masculinities. I was going to say that um, I'm actually in contact with, I don't know if anyone's seen the documentary Misrepresentation that came out like five years ago, something like that, kind of addressed um, sort of conceptions of womanhood in the media. And they've made another documentary that is coming out like soon, and I've been waiting to come out, called The Mask You Live In, I believe, which is about masculinities. And I've been contacted by them about doing a screening, and I'm going to look into getting funding so that we would have a license to screen that. And then that would be an opportunity to sort of watch this documentary that specifically addresses masculinities and all of the things that you mentioned that come out of that. And then we would have the opportunity for like a discussion afterwards. And I think that that could be something that would would sort of be popular and effective. Um, and addressing the first question about how do we sort of, if I've understood the question correctly, how do we empower women to feel comfortable to say that they're feminist? Is that the, the gist of the question? Yes. So I think it's por- important to note that a lot of women have a lot of really valid reasons for not engaging with feminist as a term. Uh, a lot of the history of feminism and a lot of stuff we're seeing like at the minute with like the suffragette film and stuff like that shows that it's quite often feminism has been like an exclusive movement. The suffragette movement was rooted in like a lot of racism and things like that. And so there are a lot of really valid reasons to not say you're a feminist. But for people, if if they're not saying it because they feel that they'll be mocked or that they don't feel that, you know, for, for sort of reasons of the sort of widespread misogyny in society, then I think there is... A lot that is changing with regards to the higher profile of feminism in the media 
and with regards to the use of like the internet and the way that women on activists online are able to connect with one another now that means that more and more young people are comfortable using that term or saying that they're an activist for women's rights so i think that with the internet and that as like a platform that a lot is changing with regards to that uh, yes, thank you. I, um, I wanted to address the question uh, that Lena just did about how, to say, uh, how do you feel more comfortable saying that you're a feminist, if that's something you want to say. And I'm going to kind of go back to when uh, the question that Lena asked me at the beginning about um, do I ever fight back? Do I ever say, no, I'm not going to get the coffee or whatever? And I, and I would say here that this, there is an element of personal responsibility in all of this. And there's an element of I take responsibility for the for the way that I'm viewed in the world. And, and if you want to be seen as a feminist, and, I, and I, of course there's misogyny, and of course you, you're in a university campus, there's going to be negative ramifications from certain quarters, but there'll be a lot of support and positive ramifications as well. You're in one of the safest cultural spaces that you're ever going to be in going forward. And so if you're not going to experiment here, I don't know when you are going to. And I think that you should, if, you know, if that's important to you, test it out and, and see how it feels and, and take some self-identification into it because you can't wait for everybody else to say, isn't she amazing? She's such a feminist. You, you're welcome to self-identify and see how it goes. And, I, and I'm not trying to make it so easy. Of course, you know, I've, I've been called bad names in the past from people too several times. It, do, you know, it doesn't, get any, doesn't get nicer every time it happens. But there is an element of personal responsibility and I'll have to take it forward going too. Next time somebody asks me to take notes. I will wait at least 30 seconds before I do it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I would take a, just one quick thing on the word feminist. Um, definition. Do you believe in equality? Yes, you're a feminist. I think it's as simple as that. I think we put so much emphasis on the label and less on what it actually means. Um, I want to talk about the positive masculinity piece, um, which is actually something that has been quite eye-opening for us on He For She. There is a growing movement in prisons um, on He For She. We received quite a lot of letters from men in prison, and one of the letters that really touched me was a letter from a guy in the U.S. who is in a maximum sentence uh, prison, and he wrote to us about his own experience. He had been in prison, he watched the speech that Emma Watson did, and decided to write to us and said, as soon as he saw the speech, he just started crying, and he was overwhelmed by emotion, and he felt that he had to write to us and tell us about his experience. And the long story short, this guy had ended up in prison because he had murdered somebody. And he had murdered somebody because of the pressure of what it felt to be a man and what it meant to man up. And he told us a story about how he was raised by a, mom, a, a single mom in the projects in the U.S. They had so little. He ended up doing um, drugs and getting involved in gangs. But there was this pressure of what it meant to be a man growing up in that particular community. And so I think often when we talk about gender inequality and, and, and the equality of gender and how this benefits men and how it benefits the women in their, in their lives, I think it's, it's, one, it's one aspect of it. I think there's a bigger aspect that we forget to mention that it also benefits the men themselves. And I think Douglas said this eloquently in his speech that it takes away the stereotypes. It takes away the pressure. You can be a guy and do ballet and it's absolutely fine. So I think we also need to find a way that we can start to speak to, to men at that personal level. Yes, every man has a mother and, you know, 
for the most part, and they may have a sister, but that's not why they should support this. They should support this because it liberates them as well. So I think that's a really important point that uh, I wanted to stress. And PWC, one of our impact champions, is developing a positive masculinity training, uh, which again will be available uh, in 2016 for anyone that wants to use that. Great. This is a good note on which to end, even though I'm very sorry to be the agent of drawing this discussion to an end. Please join me in thanking our panelists.